crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Chris Eames and today we'll be continuing our series on the modern identity of the 12 tribes of Israel. And for today's program, we'll be looking specifically at the tribe of Naphtali. Now, I think there are a few different ways people pronounce this. So just as a heads up, I'm going to be pronouncing it as Naphtali, closer to the proper Hebrew pronunciation. Now, the ancient nation of Israel contained very strong, independent, patriotic tribal affinities. And there's some fascinating biblical history and prophecy about each of them. So, as we've been asking in each of these programs in the series, what became of each of these lost tribes of Israel? following their deportation away from the Holy Land by the Assyrians. And for today's program, what became of the tribe of Naphtali? As we do for each of these programs, for our new listeners, let's briefly lay out the groundwork. In the 10th century BCE, during the reign of King Rehoboam, the northern ten tribes, they split off and became known as the northern kingdom of Israel, the Israelites. The remaining tribes, ruled by King Rehoboam, they became the southern kingdom of Judah, or the Jews. So while all the tribes can be referred to collectively as Israelites, only those of the kingdom of Judah can be called Jews, or a short form of the tribal name Judah. The Jews today are almost exclusively descendants of this southern kingdom of Judah. So what happened to the other tribes? During the late 700s BCE, the, the ten tribe nation of Israel, that northern Israelite nation, was conquered and was taken captive by Assyria. Now, the Bible describes their deportation by the Assyrians up as far away as northern Iran, and then the biblical record stops. They become lost to worldview. Uh, from this point, they become known as the Lost Ten Tribes. The Jews, on the other hand, they remain known and accounted for, uh, but but the northern tribes, they become lost. And, and what happened to the bulk of Israel? Where did they go? Where did these lost ten tribes go? And for this program, where did the tribe of Naphtali go? Now, the Bible prophesies about each of these tribes of Israel and what they would be like in the last days. So they must be on the scene somewhere. Genesis 49 is a key prophetic chapter about each of the sons of Jacob, what each of the tribes would look like in the last days. Verse 1 reads, quote, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. And Jacob proceeds to describe the specific types of people and nations that each tribe would become and the kind of recognizable power and specialities that each of them would have based on the character of their tribal fathers. 
and it's a real fascinating detailed read a prophecy of the of the future of these tribes and their national identity at the time just prior to the coming of the messiah again tribes that have to be on the scene somewhere at watch jerusalem uh, we often reference reference our free book by herbert w armstrong entitled the united states and britain in prophecy you can order this free of charge on our website This book does some incredible detective work into what happened to the lost 10 tribes of Israel, how they became lost, where they went, where they are today. And in this book, Mr. Armstrong showed that the the following, following the Assyrian captivity into Iran, the northern 10 tribes from there migrated further up into Western Europe and on beyond into the British Isles, into Scandinavia. Now, his book focused primarily on the two birthright tribes, that is Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim had been prophesied to become a great commonwealth of nations, Great Britain and her commonwealth. And Manasseh had been prophesied to become a singular great superpower, the United States of America. Of course, the tribe of Judah does remain clearly visible and identifiable, primarily made up of the Jews around the world and specifically the Jewish nation of Israel in the Middle East. But what about the other tribes? Here's what Mr. Armstrong says on page 108 of his book. Quote, We lack space for a detailed explanation of the specific identity of all of these other tribes in the nations of our 20th century. Suffice it to say here that there is ample evidence that these other eight tribes have descended into such northwestern European nations as Holland, Belgium, Denmark, northern France, Luxembourg, Switzerland, Sweden, Norway. So if you've been following these podcasts, you'll remember that uh, we've seen that, generally speaking, Reuben is France, Zebulun is Holland, Asher is Belgium, Gad is Switzerland, Ephraim is Britain, Manasseh is America, Judah is Israel in the Middle East today, and Dan is Ireland and Denmark. So what specifically then of the tribe of Naphtali? This tribe is represented by the modern nation of Sweden. As with our other programs, first we'll look at the tribal parallels and prophecies, comparing what the ancient tribe looked like and what was prof- it was prophesied to become with Sweden today. And in the latter half of this program, we'll look at the evidence of the tribal migration from uh, the Middle East to where they are today. We'll look at that in a bit more detail. Now, Naphtali was a son of Bilhar. Bilhar, the handmaid of Jacob's second wife, Rachel. Bilhar had two sons on behalf of, of the baron Rachel. These were Dan and Naphtali. So these two brothers, Dan and Naphtali, they are more closely related to each other and than the other tribes. And we see that sort of proximity today between the modern-day descendants. We've got Denmark of Dan and we've got Sweden of Naphtali. And we'll cover Denmark uh, in a future program uh, more closely. On to Genesis 49, though. Genesis 49, that primary prophecy chapter for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, this chapter starts out by establishing that this is how 
uh, these tribes are to be identified in the last days or uh, in the end of days, as various translations read, in the last days. There's only a very short passage in this chapter about Naphtali. Again, as with the, the last two programs we've done on the tribe of Gad and of Asher, and you can check those out and the other, the other tribes out that we've covered on our website, watchjerusalem.co.il. Uh, that's for all those of you who are listening uh, on the radio. Uh, but as with Gad and Asher, a very short passage describing Naphtali. But still, the, the specific identifying features are pretty remarkable. Verse 21 of Genesis 49 reads, Naphtali is a hind let loose. He gives goodly words. End quote. So let's break this verse down and see how this actually matches very well with modern day Sweden. Several of these tribes uh, described in this chapter are linked to animals. And Naphtali here is a hind, linked to the hind. Various translations read a, a hind, a deer, a doe. The, the Latin reads service, uh, so the member of the deer family. So this fits well with modern-day Sweden. Uh, it's, of course, a natural habitat for these animals. And the national animal of Sweden is the largest known creature in the deer family, the moose. The moose, as well as other species of deer, feature on numerous Swedish flags, uh, military regimental flags, provincial flags. Uh, and according to Jewish tradition, the flag carried by the ancient tribe of Naphtali uh, likewise had a deer emblem on it. Now, the deer is, of course, a peaceful animal, not like some of the other animals uh, described for the other tribes in Genesis 49, uh, not a dangerous fighting animal, but more of a peaceful Neutral, shall we say, creature, something that describes Sweden quite well. Further, Naphtali is described as a hind let loose. Naphtali would be like a deer let loose. Various translations read free running or set free. And freedom really does describe the Swedish people. Uh, a people that would be like a free deer, a people known for freedom. And Sweden is the European nation synonymous with freedoms. You could say that, well, don't all people have a desire for, for freedom? But Sweden is a cut above, as we will see, because for better or worse, it goes both ways here, Sweden is known for being a free and open society. Freedom of speech, freedom of information, freedom from the wars of recent history. Sweden was neutral in World Wars I and II. Uh, freedom of the press. Sweden was the first country in the world to sign into law a freedom of the press uh, that was in the uh, mid-1700s. And these days we're talking a lot about freedom. What with the coronavirus lockdown, not having the freedom to go out and about, not having the freedom to shop and work like normal like we want to. And what is the one country on everyone's lips for not having locked down, for allowing its citizens the freedom to make their own decisions if they want to lock themselves down or if they want to go and buy and sell and go about daily life? What's the one nation on everyone's lips. It is Sweden. 
this point in time, really, that we're living in right now highlights so starkly the uniquely Swedish sense of freedom and self-determination. The Swedish Swedish statistician and uh, there's a tongue twister there, Swedish statistician and demographer uh, Gustav Sundberg, he wrote in his 1911 book uh, entitled The Swedish Temperament, quote, the kingdom of Sweden is the oldest now existing in Europe and has, uh, as far as the record of history reaches, has never been subjected to the dominion of a foreign nation. I'll read that again. Sweden has, has uh, according to this author, has never been, uh, as far as the record of history reaches, has never been subjected to the dominion of a foreign nation. Talk about freedom. Uh, Sundberg continues, quote, No other nation has been affected so little by the Roman Church, end quote. And indeed, the Roman Catholic Church was responsible for the Dark Ages and an, and an iron-like oppressive grip over Europe. But Sweden, on the other hand, uh, they re- remained relatively free. And is there any other European nation that fits so well with this passage of Scripture? We'll, uh, we'll quote from Sundberg again further along in this program. But here's another interesting connection with this scripture. Genesis 49 verse 21. Here is a scripture from the New English translation. Quote, Naphtali is a free running doe. I now want to read to you from the official Swedish tourism website. It's headed by the following title, Freedom to Roam. This is what their official website says, quote, Sweden has no Eiffel Towers, no Niagara Falls or Big Bends, not even a little Sphinx. Sweden has something else, the freedom to roam. This is our monument. The freedom to roam is the principle protected by the law that gives all people the right to roam free in nature sleep on mountaintops, by the lakes, in quiet forests, or beautiful meadows. The only thing you have to pay is respect for nature and the animals living there. End quote. Again, from Genesis 49, verse 21, Naphtali is a free-running doe. Of course, many of these freedoms, uh, Swedish freedoms, many of them are for better or worse, and some are terribly detrimental. Talk about a hind let loose. Sweden is known for sexual freedom. Abortion has been allowed in Sweden in some form or other since the 1930s. Uh, Homosexuality was legalized in 1944. As early as 1955, sex education in primary schools was mandated in order to stop uh, unwanted pregnancy. Uh, Swedish movies in the early, uh, as early as the 1950s and 60s were known for their nudity, and Sweden was the first country in the world to allow transgenders to change their legal gen- gender, and that was in the early 1970s. Uh, you've got 2009, Sweden became the seventh country in the world to legalize homosexual marriage, and that actually had a 70 cent- 70% approval backing from the church of Sweden. And then there's the the general free open border refugee policy and that's really started to backfire over the past few years for Sweden. And we'll talk about that more uh toward the end of the program. 
and talking about being not being ruled by the Catholic Church. Actually, the Swedes are hardly under any religion. They're, they've been identified as the least religious nation in the Western world. And again, all of this, all of these are some form of freedoms, you could say, freedom of choice, but in many cases, not freedom for the better. And I want to talk briefly about woman in Sweden. Again, the animal used for Naphtali is a hind, and the Hebrew word is of the female gender. And this is unique in this chapter. You've got all of these other animals used to describe all these other tribes, the snake, the, uh, the lion, the ass, uh, the wolf, and all these other animals are used in the masculine gender, whereas the animal for Sweden is in the female gender, the female hind, a hind let loose or a doe set free. And Sweden is known for its feminist movement. Sweden is often cited as the model nation for equal opportunities for men and women, for women's so-called liberation, freedom. And, and it hasn't just been a modern trait. This tribal Swedish trait has existed for centuries. Again, Sweden as the really feminist country that, that others look to, that others point towards. Uh, Swedish women during the first millennium CE, during the Viking Age, they had a notably free status. Uh, you could say they, they could work in just about any range of fields. They had uh, rights to inherit property. They were free to bear children within or with, without marriage, without distinction. Uh, there's even indication that women held positions of military authority. Now, uh, going forward in history, much of this was clamped down during the, the Dark Ages period. But then the feminism movement began in Sweden again very early, in the 1600s, actually, really early compared to a lot of other nations, just about any nation. Uh, by the 1700s, the early 1700s, you have women being allowed to vote in certain elections or even stand for election. Uh, for certain elections, very radical at the time. And in the years since, there have been numerous, uh, at the time, quite radical equality laws uh, that were passed. Now, the first female prime minister served in the 1950s, and today about half of the Swedish parliament is made up of women. One of the political parties in Sweden is the Feminist Initiative Party, uh, just about sums up Sweden, really. The Feminist Initiative Party, and this party actually got enough votes in 2014 to have a seat on the European Parliament. That's the Feminist Initiative Party. And as for the military, all branches of military service are completely open and available to both genders, to male and female. And this has been the case, again, for, for quite a long period, since the 1980s. Uh, but from even hundreds of years earlier, there are known cases of, of Swedish women dressing as men and enlisting in the military as early as the 1500s. And uh, Sweden today is one of the rare countries that uh, has a con conscription service that is gender neutral. Sweden has the highest number of self-proclaimed feminists in the world. Uh, Sweden is consistently ranked 
at the top for being one of the best places in the world for women. So uh, again, very woman, uh, feminist-centric nation. And I ask, is is Sweden a hind? Is Sweden a female dare let loose, as the scripture says? Is she a nation known for her freedoms, her women, her policies of equality? I should say so. And this gender tendency of Naphtali is shown in a few biblical passages. And here's one in particular. Judges 4. Judges 4 describes one of the first major battles of the judges. The prophetess Deborah uh, called for a man of Naphtali called Barak to lead 10,000 Naphtalites and Zebulonites to overthrow Caesarea and his Canaanite army. And we've got an article looking actually into the archaeology of this account and how the archaeology corresponds with the biblical account. You can find that on our website again, watchjerusalem.co.il. But here we've got Deborah uh, calling on the Naphtalite Barak to lead this military rebellion against the Canaanites. And Barak's response to her is pretty telling. Verse 8 of Judges 4 reads, quote, And Barak said unto her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that you take shall not be for your honor, for the Eternal will give Caesarea over into the hand of a woman. Unquote. So here Deborah condemns Barak, the Naphtalite Barak, for his weakness, uh, that, that this Naphtalite would win no glory for himself, but since he deferred to a woman, a woman would take the glory in this battle. And one can certainly see an element of this Barak mentality in Sweden's history. It's a nation of strong women, a nation that prides itself on the feminist movement. And it's also a country uh, from another aspect. It's another. It's a country with no great desire to go to battle. Again, you, you can note the neutrality in World Wars One and Two. And this general uh, sense of of the the woman's struggle, shall we say, can be seen in the very name of the tribe as well. Naphtali. Naphtali means wrestling, and Naphtali was given that name because of his mother's. Wrestling for prominence within the family. Okay, so what about the last part of the Genesis 49 passage? Naphtali is a hind let loose. He gives goodly words. He gives goodly words. So this is a kind of a peculiar statement, but it also fits well with Sweden in many ways. Again, this is from the author Sundbag, Gustav Sundbag, in his book on the Swedish temperament. Uh, this is what he says with regard to language, quote, In Norway, it is believed that everything is benefited by big words. In Denmark, by shrewd words. In Sweden, by beautiful words. End quote. Again, verse 21, Naphtali uses beautiful words. Naphtali uses beautiful words. The exact same language, uh, that one from the New King James Version. So along these lines, Sweden is known for poetry. Uh, there have been eight Swedish winners of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, even the uh, nature of the Swedish language itself has been especially linked 
to this verse as being of beautiful words. Uh, the Swedish language is one of the few European languages, uh, alongside Norwegian, to use tonality heavily within its words. It's even been compared to Mandarin Chinese for its tonality. And this gives the language a sort of a, a, a singing quality. Now, Swedish, uh, the Swedish language technically has nine vowels, but practically it has more like 17 or 18, uh, depending on the dialect, because of the tall and short distinction of these vowels, the tall and long distinction of these vowels. So Naphtali gives beautiful words. And this could perhaps relate to musicality as well. The word beautiful here is very similar to the Hebrew word for trumpet. And music fits especially well with the Swedes, like no other nation. Everyone's, of course, familiar with ABBA, of course. Uh, perhaps you might not have realized. But uh, beyond just this single band, Sweden is a music powerhouse, like no other nation. Uh, music ex exports from Sweden are the largest per capita in the world. Sweden has the, the highest number of choirs per capita in the world. They have the largest number of rock bands per capita in the world. Uh, it's the largest exporter of pop music per capita. And putting per capita aside, even if you look at the raw numbers, uh, the raw quantity Sweden is barely the third largest overall exporter of music in the world. And that's after the US and the UK. And the US has 330 million people. And the UK has 67 million people. And Sweden has 10 million people. So even by quantity alone, not, not notching it down for the uh, per capita basis, uh, that's, that's a huge uh, percentage there of the world's music exports. So again, Sweden is, is Sweden a free, liberated hind that gives beautiful sounds, beautiful words, music? What other anti-European nation fits this verse so well? But there's much more about Naphtali in the Bible. There's a prophecy in Deuteronomy 33 that fits the territorial allotment of Sweden to a T. Now, Deuteronomy 33 is that secondary passage that's a prophetic blessing on the tribes given by Moses. And verse 23 reads, quote, And of Naphtali he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full with the blessing of the eternal, possess you the west and the south. So we see in this, uh, in this verse that this tribe would be remarkably blessed, satisfied with favor, or satisfied with pleasure, again, fitting with the, the permissive freedoms of, the, the, of Sweden. And it is also one of the richest nations in the world per capita. But I want to focus on the last part of this verse. Possess thou the west and the south. The word west here is actually the same word as sea or lake the same Hebrew word, and as such, different translations of the Bible, uh, including the Revised Standard Version, they translate the passage this way, quote, Possess the lake and the south. The New International Version reads, He will inherit southward to the lake. And this is precisely what the ancient tribe of Naphtali did. 
Now, the tribal allotment of Naphtali was at the very northern tip of the promised land. And if you're at a computer right now, Google a map of the tribes of Israel. The, the allotment of Naphtali was a long, slender strip of land right at the north of Israel. And the southward part of the territory wrapped around the Sea of Galilee to the east. Just, of course, just as what was described in Deuteronomy 33, possessing southward to the sea. So we've got this long strip of land possessing southward and wrapping around the Sea of Galilee. And you compare this, compare this territorial outline with modern-day Sweden. It's strikingly similar. Sweden today is a long, slender territory, one of the northernmost nations in the world, certainly one of the northernmost Israelite nations. And again, it wraps around a similarly placed sea to the southeast, a sea that Sweden has possessed through its history, has had significant control over, the Baltic Sea. Now, the phraseology of verse 23 is interesting. So we've, we've got these uh, allotments, modern-day Sweden, which practically looks exactly the same as the ancient territorial area of, of Naphtali. Uh, but even in the phraseology of verse 23, we've got, uh, we've got the, the scripture about inheriting southward to the lake, possess the lake and the south. So this implies that the tribe of Naphtali originated further north and would then possess further south and the lake or sea. And this too fits well with Sweden because up until uh, 1060 CE, you have the Swedish kings of Uppsala. They ruled most of what is modern day Sweden, except for the southern regions along the south, along the coasts. So Sweden expanded to, you could say, inherit southward to the lake, just as Deuteronomy 33 verse 23 reads. But the north, the biblical tribe of Naphtali, has always been a northern tribe, a tribe with strong attachment to the north. They had the uh, northern territorial allotment. Numbers 2 states that they marched on the north side of the camp of Israel when they were uh, on their sojourn in the wilderness. Ezekiel 48 outlines the northern portion of the Ezekiel temple dedicated to the tribe of Naphtali. So this all fits well, of course, with modern-day Sweden in territorial layout, in the general northern nature and affinity of the nation. The Swedish national anthem brings this out quite well. Here, here's a few excerpts which I will not sing for you. Uh, can't, I can't manage the language anyway. Uh, but here's a few excerpts from the Swedish national anthem. It reads, Thou ancient, thou free, thou mountainous north, Dropping down, yes, I want to live, I want to die in the north. Yes, I want to live, I want to die in the north. With God I shall fight for home and for hearth, for Sweden, the beloved na native soil. I trade thee not for anything in the world. No, I want to live, I want to die in the north. No, I want to live, I want to die in the north. End of quote from that Swedish national anthem. So clearly, uh, people who love the north. Sweden is the country with the largest northern population in the world at 9 million. Most Canadians and Russians live further south. Uh, but, of course, living in the north comes at a cost. 
darkness for most of the year. And even this is mentioned in the Bible in a prophetic passage about Naphtali. Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 2 is, uh, they are a prophetic passage about the Messiah. We read, quote, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was her in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. End of quote. So this verse is repeated again in the New Testament. And of course, it's speaking metaphorically about walking in darkness. But it certainly fits quite literally as well with Sweden today. Uh, northern people literally living in darkness for much of the year, the Naphtalites. Now, a little bit on Naphtali's sons. In our program on Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, we looked at the meaning behind the names of Reuben's sons and how they demonstrate some classic and typical French characteristics. And the same could be said for Naphtali and his sons. One of the sons of Naphtali is called Jezer, or Yetzer in Hebrew, Jezer, and this name means forming, creating, molding, designing. Sweden, uh, on this point, is known for producing inventors. The nation has the highest number of patents per uh, capita in Europe, from inventions like zippers to propellers to matches, Bunsen burners, the Celsius temperature scale, ultrasounds, the computer mouse, dynamite, modern car seat belts, Skype, adjustable wrenches, beverage cartons, telephone handsets, you name it. Could go on and on and on. And not just on one kind of niche area, but these are, these are inventions right across the board. Sweden truly is a nation of design, of innovation. And of course, what are you going to do with all that freedom, all that free time as we've covered earlier. Now, the Gesenius Hebrew-Greek lexicon also says this of the name Jezer, that it signifies a thing framed. And it's kind of funny, but I can't help think of Ikea here, a thing framed. One of Sweden's most famous exports, of course, the flat pack self-framing brand. Now, another son of Naphtali was named Shilem, This name means repaid or recompense to do with paying. And it's no secret that uh, Sweden is an extremely expensive place to live. It's a welfare state with extremely high taxes. Uh, And even besides that, it's a rather generous country. It's the only country in the world where donations stand for more than 1% of GDP. So it seems to be a nation that has a love to shalem, a love to pay or to repay. Another son is named Gunny. Uh, Gunny, I'm not sure the exact pronunciation of that. The meaning of this name is a bit obscure. Numbers 26 verse 48 says that the descendants of this son were known as Gunnites. And uh, we can say something for the name itself. If, if not the meaning, for the name itself, gun, that name element, gun is found all over Sweden. Gun, gunnar, gunborg, gunhild, gunbjorn, gund, gundel, gunhard, gunfred. One translation uh, suggested for the Hebrew word is my defender. And in modern Swedish, it's along the same lines. Gun means battle. And gunner was the name of one of the legendary Swedish Valkyries. 
And these Valkyries, of course, were the legendary warrior woman of Norse mythology. And so again, you've got this Naphtalite link to powerful woman. And what about the name Naphtali itself? Like we've, uh, we've mentioned earlier, this name means my struggle or wrestling. And we've talked about this in relation to women, Rachel's wrestling for power. But we could also take this name very literally as well. The following is a quote from MyWrestlingGuide.com. I think you can see where I'm going here. Quote, Sweden has a long tradition in wrestling. And in the first part of the 20th century, Sweden was a top nation in wrestling. In Scandinavia, the Greco-Roman style is more popular than freestyle. Sweden is in female wrestling, one of the best nations in the world. The Klippan Cup, that's a that's a, a wrestling cup, is one of the most popular women's tournaments in the world. So again, even very literally, you've got that wrestling element and specifically that women's element of wrestling. Finally, one more link with Naphtali and modern-day Sweden before we break. 1 Kings 7 describes the building of the temple during the days of Solomon. Verse 14 highlights a Naphtalite who was an expert in bronze work. The verse reads, quote, He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work, end of quote. So copper, of course, is the primary component of bronze. And Sweden's huge copper mine at Fallon was once the world's largest uh, producer of copper. It recently closed uh, in 1992, but it had operated for some 1,000 years prior, producing up to two-thirds of copper for Europe two-thirds of Europe's copper. So again, an interesting link between ancient and modern Naphtali. Right, we'll take a short break there, and following that, we'll, be, we'll briefly discuss the migration of the Israelites up into Europe, and we'll talk a little bit about Naphtali's future. Stay with us. This is Watch Jerusalem, where history and prophecy come alive. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. For today's program, we're examining the tribe of Naphtali and their identification as modern-day Sweden. If you're listening live uh, on the radio and missed the first part of the program, please do go online and check out the first half of this program on watchjerusalem.co.il, where we examine the characteristic description and prophecies for the tribe of Naphtali, uh, what their national European identity would be in the last days. And the links with modern-day Sweden really are quite remarkable. But for this last segment of the program, though, we'll briefly explain the Israelite migration. On previous programs, we've covered more generally the identification of the Israelites as a whole with the Celtic people that migrated up into Western Europe. 
how these Israelite tribes ended up constituting several of the major nations in Western Europe. And you can check out our program. Probably the one on Reuben would be the best one for the most information on that. But put simply, the Bible uh, prophesies that modern-day Israel would primarily be located in the northwest territory, uh, northwest of the Holy Land, ruling coastal lands and islands and dominions around the world. And this, of course, fits perfectly with Western Europe, the area northwest of the, the Promised Land, Scandinavia, the British Isles, the British Commonwealth. So, we again, we won't cover this Celtic migration in general here. You can check that out again on our uh, program on Reuben. But we will mention some areas where the Naphtalites pop up. Now, the Bible traces the captivity of the Israelites up again as far as northern Iran in 2 Kings 17. And the Naphtalites were actually conquered slightly earlier than several of the other tribes of Israel. They were conquered during the days of Israel's second to last king, King Pekah, and they were conquered by Tiglath-Pileser III. Now, 2 Kings 15 verse 29 reads, quote, In the days of Pekah came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and took Gilead and Galilee and all the land of Naphtali and carried them captive to Assyria. End of quote. The northern tribes of Asher, uh, Zebulun, and Gad were also carried away together with Naphtali, uh, all of these uh, a couple of decades before the rest of the Israelites, a decade or two before the rest of Israel. So from there, the Israelites became slaves, uh, ensconced within the Assyrian population, and eventually the Israelites and the Assyrians ended up migrating up out of the Middle East and up into Europe with the Assyrians settling, of course, in modern-day Germany. So when history records the Germanic tribes, the Huns, etc., they are not only nations that uh, became Germany, but several of these tribes are actually very different and were actually Israelite tribes. And they, but, but they still carried the Germanic language of their captors. Now, one of these Germanic tribes under that Germanic umbrella, one of these Israelite tribes under that Germanic umbrella, one of these tribes of Huns is known by two curious names. Uh, More commonly, they're known as the Heftalites, but they're also called uh, by a name with one letter different, uh, the Neftalites. They're recorded in secular history as both the Heftalites and the Neftalites. So these Huns were known as the White Huns. The Naphtalites were known, Naphtalite Huns were known as the White Huns. And, of course, it doesn't get much more white than the Scandinavian people, that's for sure. But these Huns were located in and around the area of northeast Iran. The northeastern area, uh, just, just beyond Iran to the northeast, near the Caspian Sea. So scholars are unsure of where they came from, uh, but the link to Naphtali is clear. Now, there's also another link, the largest island in the Caspian Sea, again, directly north of Iran, is called Naphtalia. Naphtalia. So we have these Naphtalites and the island of Naphtalia. But what about from there? 
In, uh, in one of our recent programs, I mentioned the Yingling Saga. This is an ancient 13th century Norse legend that recounts a tribe of gods who actually migrated from this area, from this area where the Nephtalite Huns were located. Uh, they, they recount a tribe of gods, so to speak, that migrated up into northwestern Europe and into Scandinavia. Now, according to this saga, the gods were called Esser, which could be a tribe link to a link to the tribe of Asher, again one of the tribes that were carried away captive early together with Naphtali. But according to this Yingling saga, the Don River, that's a river that flows into the Black Sea, just north of Turkey, according to the saga, the Don River divides Sweden the Great. So these gods, as they were called, lived east of the Don River, again, linking to that Naphtalite Hun area, the area of the Caspian Sea to the east, with the large island of Naphtalia in the sea. So we have this, uh, this, this, this area to the east of the Don River, and the Yingling Saga describes their journey north, northwest and up into Sweden, where they formed the Swedish ruling dynasty in Uppsala, as we mentioned earlier, the kings of Uppsala in central Sweden. Uh, And then this royal Swedish line later came to rule, as per Deuteronomy 33, southward to the sea, to the Baltic Sea. So we now jump ahead to modern-day Sweden and looking forward uh, into the future. What of Sweden's future? The Bible does have a lot to say and a lot to condemn. End-time prophecies throughout the Bible condemn our liberal societies for having turned away from God and for siding with or or exhibiting neutrality towards enemy forces. And as we've seen, uh, Sweden is no exception. We've been through that, that Swedish penchant for freedoms, including all kinds of sexual freedoms, leading the way and legalizing abortions, homosexuality, transgender rights. Uh, Sweden is even now falling to pieces due to their open border, uh, free, you could say, policy, allowing all kinds of refugees into the country. Uh, the nation has seen a huge swelling in its criminal element. We've got a a recent Trumpet article entitled, Why is Sweden Exploding? And I'll leave a link to that in the show notes uh, for this podcast on our website. Because Sweden is literally exploding. It's an underreported story, and and it sounds really incredible for such such a northern Scandinavian nation. But it's true. In in 2019, there was over 160 explosions all around Sweden, some of them full-on IED explosives. Sweden is actually being compared to a war zone, and the incredible rise in explosions, explosive violence, has coincided with that influx of refugees uh, from the Middle East from 2015 onwards. But still, in this day and age, it isn't politically correct to highlight the ethnicity behind this violence, and the Swedish government refuses to publish data on the ethnic background of these perpetrators. But this too is just like ancient Naphtali. 
a tribe that was condemned in Judges 1 verse 33 among the other tribes for allowing foreign enemy pockets to dwell within their land. And Sweden will pay and is paying dearly for their permissiveness. Scriptures like Jeremiah 30 verse 7 prophesy of a coming tribulation on Sweden and her fellow Israelite nations for for their sins. It says, quote, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is a time of trouble unto Jacob. End quote. Calamity is coming upon the children of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, including Naphtali, including Sweden, and there will be no neutral escape this time around at the time of the final prophesied resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire and the prophesied World War III that is soon to be upon us. And that's because our people have forsaken God. Daniel 12 verse 1 says that, quote, There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time, end quote. The worst time of suffering ever on this earth. And we can see how that would be the case with the proliferation of nuclear, chemical, biological weapons around the world. Never in human history have we been so able to fulfill these prophecies of worldwide utter destruction. The Bible prophesies uh, that the world is to be oppressed one final time by a powerful German-led superpower, a superpower that will be at the forefront of a lot of this destruction. And in all of this, God is seeking repentance from his people, repentance from the tribes of Israel who once knew him. But there is hope, hope for that repentance, hope for our people to cry out to God for help, hope for the prophesied return of the Messiah to save our peoples from destruction. Now, following that prophesied destruction and that humbling, the Bible reveals that under the Messiah, the tribes of Israel will reach greater status of power than ever before. And as Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 2 says, the people of Zebulun and Naphtali, people who have walked in darkness, really will see a great light. That passage goes on to describe that light, that coming government and rule of the Messiah, as verses 6 to 7 of that passage read, quote, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the eternal of hosts will perform this. And at that time, Naphtali, Sweden, really will be a hind set free. Thanks for listening. 